The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. Special thanks to our title sponsor this season, IGS. Founded in 2013, IGS develops industry 4.0 solutions in the global ag tech and commercial lighting markets. As an industry innovator, they make revolutionary controlled environment growth products. For more information, visit intelligentgrowthsolutions.com. So if you are anybody who's interested in this, don't start until you have a million dollars in your pocket. To get into agriculture, that should not be the barrier. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, welcome back. Episode 5. If you are new to the show, then this is the podcast where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of some of the leading vertical farming companies in the world. In case you missed last week's episode, I had a great conversation with Henry Gordon Smith of Agritecture. If you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend you check it out, episode four. This week, I have the privilege of speaking with John Friedman, COO and co-founder of Freight Farms, an organization that provides products and services that enable on-site commercial food production from anywhere in the world. It's one of the first companies I came across when I was looking at some of the things that were happening in the world of container farms, and so excited that I got the opportunity to have a conversation with John. We discussed the growth of the ag tech industry, the value of marketing, and the grant that John and his team received from NASA to further their work. John has a great origin story, and we also speak about the importance of educating those looking to enter the industry now. He gives us a little bit of insight into the latest model of freight farms, the greenery, and we cover some of the trends that are exciting him in the world of ag tech. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. Okay, let's get into this conversation with John. So John Friedman, thank you so much for joining us on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's been a bit of a, a busy day for both of us in terms of scheduling, so I appreciate you taking the time. No problem. Excited to talk. So when you, when you a bit of background I think would be helpful, I'm sure people who are listening to this podcast would likely know who you are, but I'm wondering if you could kick us off by giving us a bit of your background, how you ended up in ag tech and your passion for ag tech, where that might've started. Sure, sure. So I'm one of the co-founders at Freight Farms and I take on a lot of the product role, but mostly operations. And that covers everything from uh, you know sales and marketing, how we present the product to how we support the product on the back end once they're in their field. But how I got into this was actually nowhere near farming. I have a admittedly 
I don't have a green thumb, I would say, but I have a green mind. (laughs) (laughs) I started in uh, industrial design and systems engineering, and I really was attracted to how ecosystems and economies come together. And early start, I worked a lot with companies like Procter & Gamble, Unilever, and found my way into a company called Merck. And Merck, if you're familiar with them, they are a large pharmaceutical research company. And there's one of those companies that are so big, you can't really tell exactly what they do. But you know, it's, it could be evil, or it could be like saving the planet, one or the other, but definitely not both. Um, <laughs> and I got to work on some pretty exciting projects there. One team that I was on, basically, what they do is they build these large metal vats. And inside, they try to create an environment to keep a living organism alive. And that living organism is usually some type of virus. So they're trying to keep this virus alive for a long period of time so that they can test the virus against certain things that they're developing. So they want to keep this living, they call it a bioreactor. So they're keeping this bioreactor stable and the stable environment inside. And what my job was is to look at how the scientists are interacting with said bioreactor and make sure it's a safe and sustainable practice. So let's imagine that one of those viruses is something really deadly. We need to go to that that bioreactor and we need to sample off a small volume of material. Well, to do that, there is a lot of risk of exposure to that, penetrating the core of this thing, bringing it into a new vial, transporting that, and then taking smaller samples off of that. So a lot of risk areas. And the whole time we need to keep that thing alive. Man, I was so amped by this. This was like my dream job. It was so sci-fi, so cool. And a lot of the things that I was working on there really brought me into the world of workflow, process and environmental control. And a lot of the fundamentals that I learned there on that pharmaceutical scale and that safety scale was really something that I didn't know then, but would play a big impact in the things we're doing now. As you can kind of make the parallel, we're, we have a big metal box and we have living things growing inside. I want to keep that environment exactly what it wants to be and tune it to the different things that are growing inside. So that's the most direct work parallel I have how we got into the this as a business, though, me and my co-founder were we had previous marketing experience that we knew each other, and we were around this school system that um, he was working at, and he had come to me and said, "Hey, you know, they're looking at doing this rooftop greenhouse." And we had done things like sound design, stage design for larger events in our marketing days. And we were like, you know, a greenhouse, kind of like a stage and like the, like all the electrical and lighting, like that's like right up our alley, dude, let's do it. And so we threw our hat in the ring for it and it was a school. So they were like, whoever can just like, whoever wants to do it, we'll take it. Like we'll take like the feasibility study, like as a start, we went down that road and we basically at the end came to them and said, don't do it. Here it is. Like our recommendation is do not do this. It's not going to make sense. The square foot, the infrastructure you're going to have to put in place just to get something on top of this, you know, 1920s building. Never mind how are the kids getting up and down? Like what volume of production makes sense for the scale that you're investing? We went through all this and then at the end we were like if you're going to do this, do it for show. Don't do it for production because they're not going to get that return that you, in your mind, makes total sense. But you're not thinking about all these other practical things. So 
years later, we come back to them uh, as freight farms and we say, hey, we think we got what you want. And they became one of our first clients. Where was the idea for what would become freight farms? And I know there was an early iteration of what is now greenery, but when did you see, because there's a lot of different ways and obviously from the all, all the research I've been doing for the podcast, obviously, if you think about Dixon's original thought about the skyscrapers, right? That's one avenue. And I had a, a nice chat with Henry Gordon-Smith about different views of what a vertical farm actually is. But I think what you're doing with freight farms and the container farms, was there someone that, or were there people doing it with containers specifically? Because I know that the idea of repurposing containers is not anything that's new. So when did you sort of marry that those two pieces together? Yeah, when we started, we were kind of, even urban agriculture was very young, that selling people who were into urban agriculture or even calling it ag tech was a little bit laughable to the people we would you know, bring it up to. We'd be with like, you know, startup accelerator folks. And they're like, just don't say that out loud. That's not like a thing. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like forward, very jargony. Yeah, it does. But fast forward, ag tech is a thriving genre. So back then we were, you know, we were looking at the the footprint, the impact, the production, the yield. And one of the things that just kept on coming back to is standardization is something that this industry so desperately needs so that people who are not experts can get into this field. We were talking to schools who they don't want to become engineers. They don't want to become horticulture experts. They don't want to take their master's. They want to get people into this experience and see it as a revenue stream, but also a way that learning can happen at every stage of the process. So when we were starting out, one of the bigger things was how do we take the cost out of a greenhouse? How do we take it out of a rooftop greenhouse? And so the vertical you know, rooftop dream really had the biggest limitations of that structural frame is there's like a, a barrier to entry with cost. So if you are anybody who's interested in this, don't start until you have a million dollars in your pocket. And that's, that's for, to get into agriculture, that should not be the barrier. And so for us, it was what can we standardize and what can we look at that this, it's going to be the same here as it is in the islands, as it is in cold weather and hot weather. And what, how can we make something a universal starting point so that more data can be shared between this community of growers, right? Because they're all working on the same platform. So that was a big primer that we had going into this. And I was already looking at shipping containers for more of a, a home aesthetic and I think around that time, one of the pillars of containers are cool was Puma City. It was this traveling pop-up shop that Puma made for, I think it was a boat race. There's, yeah, there's this boat race that goes around and they had come to Boston and it was, it was just a thing of beauty. It was, I think like 16 containers or something stacked on each other. And it was really a exercise in can we do it for them but seeing what they were able to do with taking this and move it to city to city and just work very quickly because their framework was fixed really put us in a spot of saying okay what efficiencies can we actually gain by fixing the size and designing into something where we know we have a finite amount of space actually has some benefits to it we're thinking about headspace that space above where that humans interacting, anything that's not growing in that space is just wasting energy. You're heating and cooling. The sun is a great free resource, 
But in Boston, at three o'clock, it's, it's dark. So, you know, if you want to be at a production yield level, you need to be at a place where sun is not creating more heat, sun is not adding like fluctuations to your light cycle, and you are locked in. The second you lock yourself in with these, these parameters, it's much easier to find efficiencies and then balance across your systems. So talk to me about the 1.0 version and then what you learned from that, and then we, we can move into the greenery. Sure, sure. So the first first iteration of Freight Farms was called the Leafy Green Machine. And we started out doing a Kickstarter in 2011. Uh, we came out and we said, hey, we're going to solve all the world's problems. No big deal. And unfortunately, everybody was like, oh, yeah, prove it. And we're like, okay, <laughs> we uh, got to put, uh, put this to work. So it was really exciting, though, because through that, we started to understand the customers and the needs that are out there that are outside of urban agriculture. We really, by, by doing it this way and saying, hey, we've got this crazy idea. We want to know if people would actually want this and, and we want your support if you think it's a good idea. We started to see that the problem wasn't so much, you know, farm to table, everybody wants that and it just can't get it. It's really accessibility and that the current food supply chain is not set up to support the entire globe, even though it's a very centralized global system. So we really learned a lot about the pockets of the world that this is this is ideal for. And then along the way, found a lot more folks that actually were always finding new industries and new applications. So the original was really just that proof of concept that we built out of Kickstarter. And then our first production run was in 2014. And that was the leafy green machine. And that was essentially what is the cutting edge indoor growing stuff that we can integrate with each other at that time at the price point that makes sense for a return on investment. And so, you know, there was a lot of integration that we had to do with certain vendors and find alternatives to make sure that it was a cohesive system. Fast forward till now, we have a completely built from the bottom up everything is an OEM solution because to get those efficiencies, you can't take two off-the-shelf things and just stick them together. You have to think about them in parallel. So we've come a, a long way since 2014, but also a lot of the technology has as well. I think we're still seeing more efficient indoor lighting applications as it comes to using power and then limiting heat. So for us, that's really important. And you know, just having that, that software platform that we've built from 2014 till now growing and, and finding all the recipes that we can now give back to the network, that has really guided what we want to do with the hardware and the software combination. And that's farmhand? Yes, yeah, farmhand. Yeah. Okay. The, and was the, the thought initially, when you started and you had the leafy green machine, was there always in the back of your mind this idea that it would have to work in parallel with software like, like a farmhand because the value that you get in this environment is from the iterations of what works, what's not, how, what, what the yields? And so I'm sure it feels like a, a bit cyclical, but you're getting feedback, which drives the software, which improves the software, which helps improve the, uh, the container. Yeah, absolutely. Well, from a, a product development side, that's a huge piece for us. I'm a, I'm a big believer in like just constant feedback. But when we think about you know, the classic vertical farming and some of the vertical farming applications out there, they're really moving forward with just the, the same thing as a field. It's like find a big spot and grow as much as you can in that spot and then get transit vans and packaging and distribution off of that. 
we're looking at a, a food system that looks more like 3D printing did for manufacturing, right? A distributed system that allows people who are earlier stage to get into manufacturing. So with 3D printing, you're basically saying you don't need to do bulk like orders just to get the price point you want. You don't need to have a, a team of engineers just to get that first like proof of concept out the door. And for us, that proof of concept is a specialty crop in a specialty market where you can prove your market and you can prove your cost and relationships. And then you can scale up from there. So for us, that the smaller scale distributed that was all connected was the way to go to bring more people who wanted access into the game and then use that network effect to build a community of growers. I know that the part of what you do is also provide a lot of training for folks who are just getting started as well, because if you think of a typical farmer tilling the soil, <laughs> you know, the concerns that you would have in your overalls and pitchfork in the past, you almost need a different skill set or at least a willingness to learn new tools. If you want to be a farmer in this day and age, or at least, you know, participate in this type of ag tech environment. So how much or how important is the education aspect of what you guys are doing with all of this? So our goal as a company is to continually lower the barrier of entry for anybody looking to get in or anybody looking to scale agriculture. What that means is, you know, there's a lot of pressure we put on products for this space that need to match products we see out in the world as consumers. You know, it's, it's easy to navigate. The usability is very high. So that is, that's the path we want to stay on. That being said, farming is work. And there, there is, there's so much we can put into the product and new products as they go. And there's a real necessity to understand what the fundamentals of plant development and crop cycles and things around the life cycle really is. So we put a lot of, I wouldn't say importance, but a lot of entry points for people who are looking to learn in the decision-making process. Besides the greenery and farmhand, we have something called Farm Camp. So Farm Camp is a two-day intensive that we'll do here at the Farm, Free Farms HQ. We'll be in the farm. We'll be doing classroom lessons. And we also do on-site visits for folks who are maybe larger institutions and they've got like a team of like 10 or 20. Well, actually, some of our team will go there and, and set up shop so they can work within your facilities as well. So that's a really cool thing that we've realized helps get over that. I've never farmed before. I don't have a green thumb. I'm a little bit intimidated. And just letting people like feel themselves in that space and getting some through some of the fundamentals that they might not have needed, but gives them that comfort to really start from day one at full sprint. We also have something called Farmhand Academy. So we do have a lot of international clients and clients who just, you know, they're not going to see flying to Boston or a two-day intensive is something that they might not have the budget for. So with Farmhand, we have the Farmhand Academy module. So that's everything you would learn in Farm Camp but broken out into smaller bite-sized lessons that you can learn as you go. So if you run into something, I've never seen this before. How many do I seed if I'm seeding lettuce versus kale? What's the watering cycle for this versus that? If you want to know just the answer, we have the knowledge base there for you. But if you want to know the fundamentals behind it, that um, academy course is right there for you. Have you seen a specific profile with folks that are coming in? Or is it people that are looking to change their careers? Is it people that are coming in from traditional farming? Have, what, what's that mix look like? Yeah, yeah. We've had an amazing outreach of folks from all different walks of life. And at first, we saw a lot of people who had an existing career, they might be looking to taper off that career or might be looking to make a full switch to something that's a, 
a lot closer to their community or a lot more engagement centered. So there are a lot of folks who are maybe in their thinking about retirement, but they want something that is steady income and gives them that 15 hours of work or 15 to 20 hours with hands-on and with the community. We see a lot of folks also who are maybe looking for a second franchise opportunity where they are used to working on something that is has SOPs and, and good frameworks in place and want to build up their brand as well as support some of their other businesses. So a lot of folks who are looking to be more of the face of the product, like the specialty lettuce or a specialty crop that they want to bring to market. We have, see a lot of people who have paths into that. They've got a connection of restaurants or they've got a connection of supermarkets where they see a critical need in that supply chain and they can fill that in a matter of weeks. So that's, that's a, a big lane for us. We also see a lot of folks who are in areas where food security is a day-to-day mindset. When you're thinking about any of the island countries, you're talking about importing food. So they're looking at a high price for fresh and healthy food. And even though you're thinking, well, there's a lot of tropical places out there, why would they need this? Humidity is not always a good friend to crispy, fresh produce. Or hurricanes. Uh, or hurricanes. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Yes, uh, you get it. So hurricanes and bugs and things like that. And so, you know, well, it's a great environment for fruit. It is not always a good one for leafy greens, herbs, vegetables. And so there's a large need. And the volume that they're getting imported is always coming in at a lower quality and higher cost that people want to pay. So that's that seems to be a pretty big market for us. And then schools are a constant opportunity for education, but also food sourcing on a local level. So I think there's a, a big wave of, let's say like the younger generation of environmentalists are here and they are going to college and they are looking to hold people accountable and looking to hold schools accountable, their food service providers accountable for being the example that things are going in the right direction. So not only from a what's in my cafeteria, but are you teaching the programs that are going to inspire and create the agronomists and the biologists of the future in a very strong space? I think we see how much plant-based things are rising when it comes to our food and materials and things like CRISPR, things like different development around plant-based meats. There's, there's a lot of opportunity with plants and we're just starting to unlock them. So we do need to make sure that we're giving the foundation to uh, the next generation of career people. It would seem to be top of mind for younger generations, millennials or whatever, it, digital natives or whatever the latest generation is. There seems to be more of a conversation around that. Obviously, you do see the plant-based meats getting into McDonald's and Burger King now. So it's top of mind and there's awareness to be doing good for not only ourselves, but the planet. And this seems to sort of lend itself to those types of efforts. Yeah, we've seen a lot of really interesting research along the way. We've seen folks who are doing this for more materials-based things, where they think by growing a plant that can't grow in the wild, they'll be able to extract some component that will go into a medicine or a dye or something like that. And I think what we're what we're seeing just through our customers is the supply chain is very reactive to climate change right now. And some of the larger suppliers who for years have just held up shop in these regions where the climate was perfect for this one type of crop, and they've decided to monocrop in that area, just the slight changes is putting that in jeopardy and they need to rethink how they're handling supply chain. 
it's funny you mentioned Unilever in a past life. I did consulting work at a, at a business intelligence company and my client was Unilever. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time at the Unilever headquarters in New Jersey. So I met a lot of really interesting folks there. And then the other thing is it's not often you get to talk about SOPs or that people know what they are, but I'm, I'm a bit of a systems nerd. So anytime we can talk about, and for the benefit of the listener, that's standard operating procedures. But yeah, this idea of like documenting things, having steps, I think to people who, who think that way, the fact that you have those outlined, like these are all the things you need to do that you've shown can can have let you have a successful farm, I, I think is, is helpful for people who have that mindset and who, and who think like that. Yeah, I think SOPs are kind of a missing thing in this space. There's a lot of tribal knowledge that and generational knowledge that we've lost over the years, just in the consolidation of these family farms into bigger farms. And, you know, you think of what a farmer or master farmer is today. It's the the guy who somehow collected all that knowledge and don't let that guy go because your whole greenhouse is going to collapse. And that's, you know, that puts a barrier on people thinking that this is a legitimate business avenue for them because it's so volatile when you have that as a framework. And I think when we think about like plant growth is a very complicated science. And on the flip side, sunlight, nutrients, water, like three things and environment. So you have these these two very like opposite understandings of how how our food works. How do we get to where we are? And I think building the processes that that connect those dots are what helps more people see the easy and see the complicated as something that they're going to be able to get from point A to point Z. Are you working with uh, the Square Roots folks as well? Yeah, Square Roots were uh, our customers a few years back, and we helped them launch their Brooklyn campus. And one, actually, one of our our farm manager became their farm manager the first uh, year of their cohort. So, yeah, familiar with them. And uh, do you? So it's probably a mix. You would have bigger companies like Square Roots, you know, with a, with a plan for how they want to move into specific locations. But you do, for lack of a better term, also appeal to a mom and pop farmer as well. Would you say? Yeah, I think that's something that we don't ever want to move away from because getting started is the hardest part. I think once you, what a lot of folks in this space look at first is what's my ROI? What's the economics of growing? And if it works at that scale, scaling up gets a lot more realistic. So we always want to make sure that the entry point or there is an entry point for folks who they maybe they've been in the DIY hydroponic space for a while. Maybe they went down to cannabis and they're like, this field seems saturated, but I love growing. I love being part of production. How do I take this to the next level? We want to continue to build that on-ramp for this industry. And at the same time, we want to make sure that people have next steps for scaling up. So Square Roots is a good example. There's a lot of other companies that come to us with a larger plan that need help getting into that larger plan on a distributed level. So I think that is, that's definitely the two paths that we want to keep on supporting. But mom and pops, it's a very large section of the world. So people who have done a lot of great things in their career and want their next career choice to be something that is local, sustainable, good for the planet, and turns an income that they can live on. And do you help them think through the marketing aspect of it as well? Because not only do you have to be a farmer in this day and age, you need to be an effective marketer and salesperson as well. Yeah, I think that's something that is easily overlooked when you meet somebody who has a lot of the passion for growing and passion for running an operation, that there is some face-to-face time that you can you can avoid by getting that done upfront, you know, going into your market and finding out what are those crops that 
there's a strong need for. You can develop you know, either a single or double stream relationship. So you don't have to be going all around town. Or if all around town is your jam, do you have the consistent output to bring these to different places? So where does the produce go afterwards? That can be as complicated or as streamlined as you want it to be, but it does rely on some face-to-face relationship building. And that is something that I think you know, nobody thinks about when they think about farmers. Farmers are probably the most lean business people and versatile business people in the world. And you know, we think of them as just like, oh, alone on the farm, just like ho-hum. But they are very aware of their economics and they're very aware of their relationships and resiliency that they need to build in. And is that part of the academy, helping them think about marketing, but even things like packaging as well, like how they're going, all this sort of stuff that, that's important in, in the whole life cycle? Yeah. At Farm Camp, we'll go through everything from starting your farm to selling your produce and whatever that means for your business. So we'll go through social media marketing, we'll go through selling different pricing models, different packaging options to get the best price and figuring out what price makes sense for your market and for your offering. We do a little bit of exercise on branding, but a lot of times people come to us with a, a brand in mind or a uh, some type of brand identity that they're looking to move forward with. But our team is always eager to jump in and tell you some best tips and tricks. So we do have class modules for almost every step of the farm area experience. Can you talk a little bit about the technology and where you stand in terms of uh, hydroponic versus aeroponic and where you've landed on, at least in the short term with in greenery? So Greenery is our, our latest model, and it took a lot of the learnings from the LGM and the network and applied it to a more kind of unibody design, something that is built with every system in mind from the start. One of the things that has come with us is hydroponic baseline. We do use a drip hydroponic system, so their roots are still exposed to the open air, but they are, we're classically, I would say we're probably more classically hydroponic because we don't use sprayers. Sprayers are something that we feel uh, offer a really good value to the plant, but creates a lot of work for the customers on, or the operators on you know, maintenance. I think in large scale or in commercial grade, you need to make sure that none of those are getting clogged up by nutrients. And with the amount of nutrients that is going through at any given time, the risk versus reward on something like a sprayer, we feel doesn't build people something that they can rely on and that they can stop thinking about how the system works. We really want to take that out of the equation. We don't want you to be going under the hood every five seconds to fix something. We want you to be growing your business. So we feel like hydroponics is the more reliable of the two at the scale that our customers need. Do you see a preference for, I know a lot of it is leafy greens right now in the beginning, but have you have you seen some movement into other crops? What, what, what have you seen in so far? So uh, we started with the leafy green machine and we called it that because we wanted to give people a benchmark of crops that have high turnover that you ha- could have a consistent revenue stream from that almost every market has a need for. So not painting the picture that this thing can do anything at any time and everything, but really giving some people a an eye level to look at. What happened was a lot of people grew different things in the leafy green machine. And so we moved away from that name and, or anything that connotated that in the greenery because the greenery grows even more things and it's built with a much more flexible and versatile design. So we have a lot more control on the light tuning. So when we think about growing things for more canopy or growing things for 
uh, speed or growing things for, to flower. We now have that control in the lights and the temperature. We also have more adjustable rows. So we can actually physically adjust the rows to allow for things to grow out a little bit more, things that we want to trim rather than just harvest. So this, this is a model that has some of the most insane flexibility that we've seen in any system. We're really excited about that. Some of the cool things that uh, right now we've got a full farm all flowers. It looks like it looks insane. Uh, I'll send you a picture. It looks insane. And we've got folks who are growing kind of an array of things for CSAs. So trying to really make it fit inside some of these more corporate programs that they can say, okay, every week they're going to get a different crop mix, but it's all growing in the same farm. So the variety within the same unit has now been, been greatly expanded as well. Let me, let me shift gears for a second. You received a grant in 2016 from NASA. Can you talk? I wanted to make sure we talked a little bit about that and the work you did there because that sounded that was really interesting. Yeah. So, highlight of my life is the NASA SCTR that we did, and so we had gotten word of a group within NASA that was focused on interplanetary sustainability with the parentheses of making self-sufficient infrastructure for Earth, right? So if you if you can make it self-sufficient here, you should be able to make it self-sufficient anywhere, but we shouldn't be focused on expanding into space before we fix our planet first. So that's their mindset. And so we're like, well, I like these guys. What, what do they got? So after a little bit of exploration, what we got down to was a premise that we can create a unit that is self-sustaining and requires no outside inputs as far as energy and water. So we can capture the water from the air and we can run this completely on solar power. So what that premise would allow us to do is say, this could feed a crew over a period of time, no matter where it is, or in a third world country or after a disaster, you can put one of these down and you're not limited by access to water or a sustainable grid. So those are, that was the, those were the things that we set out to solve. And what came out of it was a growing cycle with inside the unit that we basically used the leftover plant material to create the grow medium. We grew certain plants to seed while we grew certain plants for eating. So we'd always be able to sustain a crew of seven because of the amount of plants that were being harvested, the plants that were turning to seed, and then the plants that were then being used for nutrient tea and for grow media. So this was really exciting to us because if that premise exists, then there's really no reason we need to rely on natural resources for feeding the planet. So that was what we did with them. And so you can read all about it. It's called SSCPU. It's a self-sustaining containerized production unit. And they published those results. And a lot of what the output of that turned into was the baseline for the greenery. So the greenery has a lot of the NASA funded research in it. And that is through the LEDs and the spectrum that we needed to create something that went to seed, to harvest, and to grow a bigger mass of plant matter. How, how fun was it to work with NASA? Oh my God, so fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because um, we had another thing in common. I moderated a panel at a podcasting conference for NASA because I, I met one of the, the people who run the podcasting group there. So they have like four or five different shows. And so I was able to work with them. But obviously, because it's NASA, we had like a lot of meetings. It was only a panel, but we met like a dozen times just to get everything ready. And it, the, the feedback was really good because people were like, that's the, one of the best panels I've ever seen run. And just kind of speaks to like that NASA mindset of like, and I'm sure you probably experienced it working with them as well. Yeah, cross all the T's. Yeah. Um, I, I will say, you know, NASA is a really interesting organization because you go there 
and they forget that they're NASA sometimes. They forget how awesome the like scope of work that they have worked on over the years is. So they're very casual about it. So we tried to act cool, but failed <laughs> miserably. So as we start to, to wind down, what, what's got you excited and what are you finding? I imagine with a data set like that, I'm, I'm thinking now from my consulting days, data scientists, business intelligence, you know, you start to collect all these data from all these greeneries and you start to probably see some trends that, that'll get, or I don't know if you're at the point where you're starting to see some interesting data come back. Yeah. So right now we have the largest network of farmers in the world that all that data is out there and cross-referencing that and saying, well, why is this person doing better than that person? And why are you getting better yields than this person growing the same thing? Those are things that, you know, early days you have to do manually and, and really have to like go into the weeds. Now that we're through the phase of LGM to LGM at scale, now to the greenery, we have more intellect around the data that we have. So that structure provides us quicker results to know how can we help the customer get a better ROI? How can we help Anybody who's operating a farm, do it with less energy, but still get the same results. And then what different crops can we grow? And what are those recipes for those crops? And so all that data coming back puts us in a good position to apply some machine learning. Always look for the best, the most efficient head of lettuce. And then if it looks good to us, we'll say, hey, network, guess what? There's a new most efficient recipe. Download it if you want it. So those are the those are the places we see some really exciting opportunities. Is the network starts to create this path forward to get efficiencies that with tribal knowledge or generational knowledge, one person might have, and one person in the middle of nowhere might be the best. But does it really matter if that person can then pass that to hundreds of other people? And now on that recipe, they're competing for what is the even better one. We're going to start to see progress in plant yield efficiency and hopefully some labor efficiencies as well. Crowdsourcing. Crowdsourcing, yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, it's interesting because um, you said download the recipes. So you would basically get the components or the settings necessary where that farmer had success with a specific crop and you with your own greenery can say, okay, whatever the settings were that he had in terms of, is that then, then timing of like the lights and the water and all that? Is, is that the recipe? That's right. So, you know, when we think about uh, how farmhands cloud IoT works, just like any other IoT system, you're basically saying there's all these components and how are they working in orchestra to get a desired result. And so we can do a lot with only sensor data. We don't need the user to like type in info. We don't need we don't need user data. That's we don't care if you're on Facebook or what you're doing there. It's really like how efficient are are these mechanisms? And what it helps our support team is if somebody's having a problem, we can see, oh, okay, so you put this on this cycle and put that on that cycle. Those are gonna conflict. So they can help you kind of diagnose a problem from you know halfway across the world. So with you know this technology in place, it also gives people a little bit more comfort that they're not alone in like, okay, I forgot what settings I put it on. Like, I, I, like, can I just, like, you can go back to default, but if you have something you like, but you just can't figure out why, that allows our support team to say, hold on, okay, like, what's your farm number? I'll log in and see what, what you have going on. And this way, like, we can create a different conversation around farming and and the best practices. I envision you having some sort of, well, NASA as an example, like panel of like all the different greeneries in the world. Like on a, you do have the world map on your site, which is really cool. Oh man. Um, <laughs> Someday we're going to have the NASA spread. Farm down. I, met this, I, I touched on this a little bit with Henry Gordon Smith of Agritecture, but this idea of like actually creating seeds for these specific environments 
as well because they, they can only grow or, or flourish like what we saw with the bunch cherry tomatoes for example in recent news are you seeing that as well that the actual like cultivation of, of seeds for these environments yeah so that uh, that news with the cherry tomatoes was actually us with cold spring harbor and so cold spring harbor had come to us and they had said listen we have a lot of seeds that are on the shelf and we want to take them off the shelf. Like they didn't work in traditional field-based, but the premise of them is awesome. Like it's basically a smaller plant that kicks off a ton of produce. So using less energy on the plant and putting that all into the fruiting. And so we were like 100% sign us up, whatever you want to do. And just to understand the composition of the environment that we can create is something that can unlock something hidden in the plant's DNA is really exciting. To say like, we've got these seeds that could feed the world at a whole different scale or have this property that we just can't get out with growing it in California. But if you could take the soil composition of California with the air quality of New Jersey, say, and the like volcanic like vibe of Hawaii, you mash them all together, you could pull out this naturally occurring thing on the seed wow, that's super exciting. And so for us to have not even knowing that this is like a premise that they're on, have built this infrastructure to enable these seeds who I guess what you'd call dormant to come out and and really celebrate these functions of their genetics. I think that is, there's a huge place for research and development there on the food side, but also just understanding what more we can do with plants. Well, a lot of exciting things on the horizon. So I want to thank you for taking the time to, to share with us everything that's happening. I'll probably follow up. You've got some ideas of where I'd see a good place for a farm, a greenery. My brother lives in New Orleans and I saw that there was a, there's nothing in Louisiana right now. So. No, we got to get one down there. <laughs> yeah, we got to get one down there. So where's the, the best place for folks to connect with you online and to learn more? Everyone can always go to freefarms.com. There's lots of case studies and info about products and different classes that we offer. But if that's uh, too much for you to hop onto a website, you can always catch us at Freight Farms on Instagram. Well, John, I want to thank you for giving us the update on what's happening. Lots of exciting things happening in this space, certainly. So I appreciate you taking the time. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Harry. So thanks again to John for sharing his insights about everything that's happening within Freight Farms and his excitement for the ag tech industry. Remember, if you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. As always, special thanks to our season one sponsor, Intelligent Growth Solutions. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. If your company would like to understand how a podcast can help build your brand, sign up for a free call at fullcast.co forward slash chat one five. Make sure you tune in next week for my engaging conversation with Dave Riddle of Clawson Greens. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Vertical Farming Podcast. Here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To hear all past episodes and read the episode summaries, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.